0: I want to talk tonight about, uh, as promised, <laughs> concentration and insight or concentration and mindfulness and ways they work together and also ways that they are sometimes distinguished one from the other, both as qualities and as streams of practice, as um, whole schools of, of techniques and, and methods. So as qualities, definitely, we can see that they can come together, they support one another. In some ways, they're inseparable but distinguishable. Concentration really does mean a kind of steadiness or steadfastness of attention. Most of us experience ourselves as fairly scattered or distracted or fragmented, kind of all over the place. But through training, we can actually arrive so that we're much more present and much more focused. The deepening of concentration isn't really a harsh exercise, sometimes it sounds really almost brutal to people. I remember I was teaching once somewhere, it was a non residential weekend, and Somebody in the group, this was like Saturday just before lunch. He came up to me and he said, how much money would it take for me to offer you for you to promise not to use the word concentration again for the rest of the weekend? (laughs) So I said, let's talk. (laughs) So obviously for him the word implied something really harsh and repressive where you're just like trying to, squeeze your attention down and hold it fast to some object and you resent and try to reject everything else that might come up. It did sound kind of horrible um, as I imagined his, his conjecture about it. So I said to him, how would it work for you if every time I say concentration, because that is such a, a standard translation, I'm so used to saying it, I said, how would it work for you if every time I use the word concentration you substituted in your mind settling, centering, steadying. And he said, I can do that. And I said, you just saved yourself a lot of money. (laughs) So concentration is that stabilizing, arriving, being present, gathering, all our maybe wildly disparate energy, bringing it together, like a sense of coming home. Okay, now let me move to mindfulness for a moment and then come back to concentration. Mindfulness, as we use the word, as Christina said, is actually almost more like a compound. It's sati sampajanya. It's it's mindfulness, clear comprehension. It's got a little bit of the flavor of what we would call metacognition. It's being aware of what's happening in the moment, knowing we're aware of what's happening in the moment without adding holding on, pushing away, getting confused, numbing out. If you could say um, classically without adding grasping, clinging, holding on, without adding anger, fear, rejection. So grasping, aversion. And then the third common tendency we're countering with the force of mindfulness um, is delusion, and in this sense, delusion means a kind of numbness, a disconnection, kind of snoozing. So uh, going back to what Mark was talking about in terms of Vedana, the feeling tone, <clears throat> the valence that we find in every experience. As he was saying, the, the quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality is not inherent to the object, there are a lot of layers of interpretation and experience and belief and all kinds of things that might go into how we sense something to be. You, know, you might have a really sharp shooting pain going down your arm and in almost every circumstance you'd find that unpleasant. But maybe your arm has been totally numb, like frozen for the last six months and then you feel this sharp shooting pain. It actually feels kind of good, right? So in that particular circumstance, you find it pleasant. And there are ways that we, we kind of work with that. But most critically, that's a given. Whether we're seeing something, hearing something, feeling something, having an emotional state, whatever it might be, we find it to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And this is something I think that, we're, that is worth <clears throat> emphasizing because sometimes people think and say, If I get really good at meditation, I'll lose all the highs. I'll lose all the pleasantness. But that won't really matter because I'll lose all the lows too and everything will sort of morph into this gray blob. And sometimes people long for that and sometimes people fear that, but it's not what happens anyway, so it's kind of irrelevant. We continue to experience pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality. That's just woven into... The way our whole system works, but it's the subsequent moment that's really critical. Do we hold on to the pleasure? Do we try to own it, possess it, keep it from changing? Now, there's a forlorn task, right? But we do it over and over again. And thereby, we actually enjoy it less, but we're uh, kind of adding a lot of suffering to the mix by trying to hold on, which never works. What happens when we have an unpleasant or painful experience and our tendency is to push away, to want to avoid it, to separate from it, or to recoil in fear? That tends to exacerbate the pain, doesn't it? And for all those neutral experiences that are just kind of ordinary, repetitious, routine, that's when the delusion tends to come in. We go to sleep we numb out, we kind of go into waiting mode, like I need something better to be happening that I can pay attention to. Or we're counting on some kind of intensity, whether of pleasure or pain, in order to feel alive. So these are the common conditionings we just have running. Holding on, pushing away, numbing out. And then uh, in that schema of the mind of life that the Buddha laid out. He said, we can feel pleasure fully without that extra thing of holding on and clinging. We can feel pain fully with an open heart and a compassionate presence and not add all that other stuff. And we can actually wake up and connect to all those neutral moments. So the agent that does that is mindfulness. That is the definition of mindfulness, a quality of awareness that can be with anything without adding, holding on, pushing away, or numbing out. So, um, and as I said the other uh, day, the main function of mindfulness is to be as the platform for insight, for wisdom, And the insights are are many. They happen on all kinds of different levels. And we'll continue to talk about that as the retreat goes on. But here's just one example. Let's say anger arises, uh, strong anger. Of course, as Mark said, our tendency is to be rather interested in the story and the object, like who did what to whom? right? Or what did I do if we're angry at ourselves? And it's not that common to kind of pivot, to turn our attention to the feeling itself, but that's like the first stage. And rather than either identifying with it, like I'm such an angry person, I will be forever, or being horrified by it and thinking I didn't really feel that, or um, trying to reject it or getting lost in it, overcome by it so that we actually... Get up and go to the computer and write out that email and press send, right? We just turn our attention to the feeling itself. So, I, I said in several of the groups that I met with um, that I was sitting here once as a, a retreatant, and one of my teachers, this man named Maninder, was here from India. And I was feeling a lot of anger, which I was pretty upset about. I thought, I've been practicing for six or seven years or something, I forget what. Uh, surely it should be completely gone by now. So as I was describing my experience to him, I'm sure he could tell I was not very pleased. And he said, this is how you should be with the anger, with your anger. He said, imagine a spaceship has landed on the front lawn, and these Martians come out, and they come up to you and they say, what is anger? What is anger? What does it feel like in your body? What's the emotional play? Because it's not just one thing. It's never just one thing. It's moments of sadness, moments of fear, very likely moments of feeling helpless. In Tibetan Buddhism, they say, anger is that which we pick up when we feel weak because it helps us feel strong, we think. So we take a look at the anger movie. Oh, there's this, there's that, there's that. Now, none of these really sound good, none of them feel good, but that's an alive system. As we look at it, it's not something inert, oppressive, unchanging. And in fact, as we look, we get that kind of insight. Oh, look at how much sadness there is in that anger. Look at how much loneliness there is in that desire. Look at whatever. You know, that's a whole layer of insight. And then we see further into the heart of that experience, where we see, look at that. It really is constantly changing. It seems so inflexible. It seems so like concrete. But when I actually look at it, look at that. There's so much change within it, because there's change within everything. So this isn't something we're superimposing because we think we should be seeing it. It's because we're paying attention without fighting And without being lost, because we're paying attention without adding greed, hatred, or delusion, that we've kind of created the environment, we've built the platform to see right into the heart of the experience. And what we see is this kind of transparency, and that's true of everything. One of um, my friends, a student who had a very bad chronic pain condition, was working with physical pain in just that way. And what she came to, what she expressed to me was, very beautifully, she said, I found this space within the pain. doesn't mean it was wiped out. It doesn't mean she enjoyed it, you know. But it was an alive system, and she could see into it and see its constantly changing nature. So that truth of constant change, everything moving, shifting, is a very fundamental truth of life. We'd say change is life, and life is change. So that's a profound insight when we see it that directly, that wholeheartedly. Now if you, and I'll get into this a little bit more later, if you said to me, would you rather see deeply into the truth of change, looking at bliss or looking at anger, I'd say, Bliss. <laughs> But thus far, no one's asked me. And what's so amazing is that from the point of view of insight, it doesn't matter. They're both actually perfectly fine vehicles for seeing that level of reality because everything shares that level of reality. So this is also why we say in mindfulness practice, it doesn't matter what you're looking at. What matters is how you're looking. Now certainly, just from kind of a level of social concern. I'd rather leave a retreat, too, and say to my friends, first it was joy, and then it was bliss. Then it settled down into this serenity, uh, which had these edges of peace that were very deep and sparkly, and I would much rather say that than first I was sleepy, and then I was restless, and then my knee hurt, and then my back hurt, and then I was bored, because nothing much was happening. But... In truth, and not just as solace, you know, or a kind of remedial practice, in truth it doesn't matter if we're actually paying attention in that way of, of mindfulness, really looking into the heart of each of our experiences. So we say mindfulness doesn't take the shape of what it's watching. Right? We can be mindful of joy, we can be mindful of grief, we can be mindful of pleasure, we can be mindful of pain. And so, in a way, like the whole world opens up for us as a a possible vehicle. Okay, so that's mindfulness leading to insight, back to concentration. So, concentration um, can, which is just that stability, that ability to be present. Is said to be ethically neutral. It doesn't have a moral valence to it. And the example that's always used is a cat being really focused at a mouse hole, waiting for the mouse to come out so it can eat it. Right? I don't know exactly what's going on, little cat brain, but you know, one assumes they are very, very there. You know, but there's not maybe a lot of metacognition going on. You know, they're not aware of their desire and its impermanent nature and, and the fact that it's causing suffering and, the, you know, right? Different. So concentration um, is very important. Without that some measure of being able to gather, being able to stabilize our attention, it's actually very difficult to pay attention because we just get dragged into things. We're like all over the place. As one of my teachers, this Tibetan teacher, said in terms of thoughts and like even a barrage of thoughts, he said it's not the thoughts that come up in our minds that is the problem. The problem is the glue, right? We just glom on to these different things. We're uncentered, we're just tossed around by so many things that come. We go up, we go down, we're all over the place. So it's really helpful to develop some base of concentration so we can, we can feel a much greater stability. The two of the um, greatest benefits of just concentration, just that factor, are said to be, first of all, power. It is a path of power because that's an enormous amount of energy that could be available to us but is not, usually, because it's flying all over the place. Even when, you know, you sit down, as I used that example the other night, you just sit down to think something through, and we're gone. Like, all that energy goes into going over the past and going over and over and over and over some situation, all that anxious speculation about the future, and we do it again and again and again. That's a huge amount of energy that is lost to us and so as we gather it back and then we do it again and we do it again and we do it again we find over time we're not so scattered we're not so divided or if we do get really scattered we know how to start over pretty quickly so that over time that energy is returned to us it becomes available to us and that is tremendously empowering So concentration is a path of power. It also um, has a kind of integration in it, which is itself a kind of healing. There's all that uh, thought, aspects, identification, all those things going on. And as we gather, we feel a sense of cohering. It's like we do find a home. We have a sense of coming together being centered. So with that, we're not so completely overcome by the winds of change. You know, we have a center. It's like, uh, you know, those old examples of being like a mountain. All that stuff's happening, and the wind's howling, and things are being thrown on it, and it's just like, all right. Not in a static way, but just that sense of not being overcome by everything. We have a much, much greater stability, and there is a kind of integration in that. But power is not wisdom, and power is not love necessarily. It might be, you know, it might be co joined, but it isn't necessarily so. Power is power. And so it's certainly possible to develop great, great concentration and not have it be accompanied or surrounded by or supported by a tremendous sense of compassion or ethics or caring about others or understanding the truth of change. It could be combined, in which case we have like the best of both, but it doesn't have to be. So this issue of what to do with concentration Um, is is a very interesting one. and Historically, it's been treated in a lot of different ways in, in different traditions. We need some concentration for sure or we cannot just pay attention to all the various things coming and going. We just kind of fall apart. But how much concentration do we need and how do we develop it? Do we develop it side by side with the mindfulness or do we develop it separately and first. So a very common way of really um, expressly trying to deepen concentration is the way we started. We choose an object of awareness. We settle our attention on that object. Our minds go everywhere. We bring it back. Now that object, that kind of home base, that central object, could really be anything. Could be a mantra, could be an image, could be a sound, could be a prayer, could be something happening in your body. And very often in this system, it is the feeling of the breath. For one thing, as my early teachers would say, you don't have to believe anything in order to feel your breath. You don't have to call yourself a Buddhist or Hindu or reject anything else. If you're breathing, you can be meditating. And then, as one went on to say, I always felt very charmingly, he said, the breath is very portable. You know, so here we are in retreat, or maybe you sit every morning for 20 minutes and we practice showing up, arriving, being present through the vehicle of the breath. Then you're at work or you're at school or something, you know, much more complex, crazy environment, you've got the breath as that steadying point. It's a great practice. Um, they say that in terms of that kind of uh, simple practice, we choose that object, we settle our attention in a balanced way, our attention wanders, we bring it back. Where our attention wanders is not of much concern. It's the settling and the coming back that is the um, means of deepening the concentration. So when I was first practicing in India, uh, my very first exposure to meditation, when I walked into that 10-day retreat, I had never meditated before for one single second in my life. And I was 18 years old, and I was very uh, unused to introspection in many ways. So... Uh, And I was very judgmental, so everything I saw I found kind of bizarre and shocking and surprising. Somewhat famous, actually, um, amongst the group of people that I'm still quite close to, people I met on my first retreat, for once having marched up to my first meditation teacher and looking him in the eye and saying, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating, (laughs) thereby laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, which was on him. and and of course I was hugely angry but I hadn't seen it before so when I would start to see those things I would go off in these long trains of incredible judgment and dismay and I finally invented my own meditation technique which I'm about to share with you I never trademarked it but I have put it in several books Um, and that is I was uh, practicing, as I mentioned in one of our sessions, um, also with the option of doing mental noting, like quietly saying in-out with the breath, just to support the actual awareness of the sensations of the breath. So this is what I decided to invent. I decided I was going to have two mental notes. One was breath, and the other was not breath. So I'd feel a breath or two, (laughs) and then my mind would wander, and I'd be lost in some big tangle of something. And when I realized it, rather than freaking out, like, oh, my God, you know, I'd just say to myself, not breath. You can let go and come back. That's like concentration practice. doesn't matter if it's the most beautiful thought in the world. doesn't matter if it's the most terrible thought in the world. It's not the object. Right? It's not the breath. So they say that in terms of that kind of practice uh, of really deepening concentration primarily, doesn't mean there's no mindfulness, there's no insight, but the primary thrust is to deepen that sense of focus or steadiness. Um, the Buddha taught 40 objects. And of course, there are many more, but that's kind of the classical list. Um, The breath was one. And they say that sometimes your teacher, whoever your teacher was in those days, would select the object of concentration for you also based on what seemed to be a good balancing factor for you. So uh, the breath was good for anybody. Some people who experienced a lot of anger maybe or a lot of fear, they would be given loving kindness, which is also a concentration practice as a way of not only building the concentration but having an antidote for what might be some, some very strong tendencies they could come to a, a place of balance for people who are very greedy and very lost reflection on death and the inevitability of one's own death. Um, there are reflections on one's own goodness. Now, that's a hard one for us, actually. I've taught here many times. Uh, in longer retreats, where like we have a six week and a three month retreat, you know, two six weeks back to back every fall, oh, which I used to teach quite a lot. And every, uh, I don't know what it is now, it used to be every Tuesday night, we would do a guided loving kindness practice. And often, like in the beginning of the six weeks, someone would bring up, well, you know, a very classic reflection is your own goodness, the good within you. And then maybe six weeks later, that person would say, anybody done that over the last six weeks? And I was like, no, no, that's that's tough. Um, but here, it's a balance, right? If you're the kind of person who can think all day about everything you've done wrong, it's a balance. At the same time, it's it's a practice of concentration. You choose certain qualities and you go over them and you rest your mind there and then you come back to them when you're Um, distracted and so on. So there's a whole range within within those 40. And the idea was that and was a thread, not the only thread, but a thread throughout the history of, of the preservation of these techniques. The idea was that you would develop concentration primarily for some time and then when you really had achieved some stability you would open up your awareness and, in effect, practice mindfulness. You would begin paying attention to those distractions, so-called, rather than just saying, not breath, and coming back, right? It would, it would be a strong emotion that would come up that would take you away from your chosen object. So that, would, that strong emotion would become the new meditation object, and you would try to see into the heart of it in the particular way that is mindfulness, and discover deeply, and and really, um, almost like on a cellular level, something like the truth of change, right? So there was a time when you would make a shift, but it was only after you had developed some amount of concentration. So how much concentration is a very big question. Um, There are different layers that are talked about, and they have a lot to do with the hindrances that... Mark spoke about, so there's something called access concentration, uh, which basically means your concentration is strong enough so that if desire and anger and sleepiness and all that stuff arises, it's not going to drag you down. You know, there's that sense of centeredness, and it's almost more like uh, something wispy rather than a steel club hitting you over the head, right? Right? It, they come, but um, the phrase is seclusion. They're kind of secluded. They're not, they don't overtake us. So that might have been considered a point where one switched to a more um, open awareness and paid attention to a lot of other things to, to develop insight. There are states um, of concentration known as jhana uh, where... Um, the mind really, um, sometimes it's translated as trance or absorption. They're kind of far out experiences, basically. They're very altered states of consciousness that come simply through concentration. Uh, And there are different levels of jhana. Some people, some systems will say they're uh, rather difficult to attain. Others would say they're pretty accessible. There's a lot of difference of opinion about all of that. But one way to understand that is through um, the highlighting and emphasizing and rebalancing of five factors, five mental factors, that really make up um, at least the first level of what's called or a really altered state of consciousness through concentration. And these five factors are uh, initial application, sustained application, this word that's usually translated as rapture, which I'll get into in a minute, happiness, and one-pointedness. So imagine your mind really just predominated by... So what initial application means is kind of pointing your mind toward an object. And sustained application means connecting. So the example that is commonly used, remember the broccoli we had for lunch? Okay, imagine a piece of broccoli on a plate, and in your hand you're holding a fork, with the obvious goal of just connecting deeply enough with the fork and the piece of broccoli so you can lift it and eat it. To do that, we need two things. We need aim, right? If you take the fork and you wave it around in the air, you're not going to have a lot of lunch. So it's just like we aim and then we connect. And that connection has a kind of balance to it. If there's too little energy, it's like the fork just hangs there in our hand. If there's too much energy, it's like we take the fork and we bash it through the broccoli and everything goes flying. So we just aim and connect. right? That's initial application, sustained application. That is actually what makes concentration happen. We aim our attention toward just one breath. For the last 50 don't matter. And you know, sometimes we all can be in kind of a kind of a hypervigilant state and we think, well, I've got to be ready. For the next eighty breaths, but we don't. It's like just this one. We aim our attention and we connect. So this example, this imagery was used endlessly when I was practicing in Burma. Although they'd say meat, uh, we say broccoli. Um, you know, and sometimes I would actually visualize it. I'd visualize this piece of food in a plate and I'd say, "Okay, what am I doing?" And I'd realize I was taking the fork and like bashing it through. And I'd say, "Okay." So it's initial application, sustained application, rapture. Rapture is a weird word. Um, A friend of mine from uh, England actually suggested a more appropriate word, Mark can tell us later, is raptness, which is not a word we use in the States. But it means that that word that is being usually translated as rapture means intense interest, right? It's like everything comes together. We're so into something, and there's all this physiological reaction to that. You know, we get goosebumps, or we shake, or you know, there's there's this amazing kind of feeling of energy, like this surge of energy. Just because we're so there, we're so interested in something, right? we're not scattered we're not distracted so uh, i usually say rapt chore because that's common but i think raptness is it has got some of that flavor probably more accurately like happiness it's sweet it's serene it's comforting it's soft this meaning of happiness And then one-pointedness, it's like the dignity of really having that kind of centeredness. And anything might happen, but you're kind of like upright, you're together. You have that stability in your mind. So when we get very concentrated, whether you call it a jhanic state or not, The predominant states in our mind are initial application, sustained application, raptness, happiness, and one-pointedness. That's a nice mind, right? That's actually an extraordinary state of consciousness uh, when it grows to a certain degree. So there are certain schools of meditation uh, which, for whatever period of time, will emphasize the kind of... um, practice of concentration in the way I described it, like breath and not breath, just coming back to the object and coming back to the object until you have certainly a different state of consciousness, much more stability and all these five factors are really cooking very strongly. And then, uh, right at that point, you open up your awareness and what you're paying attention to is the changing nature of happiness the changing nature of that kind of stability as you watch them, because everything has that nature of change, right? But that's how many, many schools, very classically, will have urged people to practice really deepen, and have these kind of exalted, extraordinary states of consciousness and then watch them change and realize everything is moving. Everything is shifting. You cannot hold on to anything. That's just the nature of things. So I, in that famous course that I've been talking about in 1984, when we brought Saida Upandita here, uh, and he taught this three-month retreat, there was one point when I just got into this funky state, and I was feeling a lot of physical pain, and it felt like um, it didn't feel like the level of pain, you know, that you get sometimes because you're sitting with bad alignment or you're not accustomed to sitting or something like that. It really felt like the existential pain of existing in a body. And I wasn't in a really good mood either. And I wasn't that happy. So I went to see him in one of our interviews and I said to him, which was incredibly audacious, If you, some of you probably do know how stern he is, uh, or was, I said I heard about this monastery in Thailand where you could do loving kindness practice until you achieved like this tremendously beautiful lovely state of exalted consciousness through concentration and then you watch those beautiful lovely states fade away I want to do that <laughs> I'm tired of like, you know looking at the changing nature supposedly of these miserable feelings and uh, <laughs> And he laughed. He was like, yeah, right. You know, go back. Go back and practice. But I did go to Burma the next year and do loving kindness practice for three months. So there. Yeah. So that um, historically uh, became a very strong movement. Um, having a, a concentration practice, really developing it, And then after some achievement, opening up and having a kind of broader mindfulness and and practicing insight meditation. The sociological consequences of that was that for lay people, uh, people such as ourselves, the teachings got more and more remote, right? To have a practice that really could help you liberate from grasping and aversion and delusion and the habits of mind that keep us feeling so separate and so burdened and so oppressed. To experience some real freedom and insight in this life, it wasn't easy because you know, developing a, a concentration practice is often quite dependent on circumstance. We know that, right? We can get much more concentrated in a quiet place than a noisy place. That's why we're here because we want to use concentration. But if concentration is at the very core of what we're trying to develop, and you live in New York City, you're out of luck, right? It's like you can sit, and your energy all comes together, and you're really going deep, and then the sirens go, you know, or your neighbor does something, and it's gone, and you're really annoyed. Whereas we say, You can be mindful of the quiet and of the deepening concentration and really enjoy it. Then the siren goes. You could be mindful of the sound. You could be mindful of your annoyance. You could be utilizing attention through that whole chain of events. But to kind of select out as your primary goal concentration, it's very hard in regular life. And so that prospect of a really freeing practice was pretty well removed from ordinary people. And then, uh, as is always the case in um, systems of of thought, these movements began, right, that were the countervailing movement. So uh, amongst them was uh, my own teacher's teacher, or Sayada Upandita's teacher, whose name was Mahasi Sayada, who was a Burmese monk who... um, through his own practice and through his scholarship, uh, came to the decision, it was his own kind of realization, that you know, you might not need such huge levels of concentration in order to practice mindfulness and, in, and get insight from that kind of deep attention to the things that come and go. And what he proclaimed instead... Was that you could get any amount of concentration that you would need just from a continuity of awareness, right? So continuity in practicing mindfulness became his um, real mark. That was like his contribution. And the sociological implication of that was that a practice of liberation was returned to lay people. Because you can practice a continuity of awareness, and I don't want to be glib about that. Because you know, many times people have said to me, because uh, I do teach a lot in New York or other places like that, and people say, "Well, you don't really have to practice at all, do you? You can just be mindful stirring the rice." And um, and I think hypothetically that's true, but will we really be right? Be mindful, perfectly mindful. In a continuous way, getting on the subway and going to work and leaving work, and not to mention the whole time we're there, and you know, leaving work and taking care of our kids—it's not that likely, is it? You know. So those periods of dedicated practice, I think, are of great value. And it's true that the continuity of awareness uh, will be the key. So, you know, I know people, uh, women, who were in very bad situations in India in terms of family structure and um, arranged marriages and so on who really got to a a pretty estimable state of uh, practice and were considered really fine teachers. And I remember asking one of them, well, how did you? Her in-laws would never let her go on retreat and she couldn't really sit formally much during the day and so we would say to her like how how did you get there you know how did you really develop that kind of wisdom and she said i was very mindful stirring the rice but i suspected the difference between her and me is that she really was and that i just thought it was a nice idea <laughs> you know that i could do maybe right but there it it's like a commitment to a continuity of awareness became the, the mark of this particular school. And so I was talking to some of you today, again, back to that famous retreat um, with Sayadaw Upandita in 1984, uh, where he was working very individually with us, which we had no way of knowing because we weren't talking to one another. And the way he worked with me was very much around that. We were asked to go in you know as I said and see him six days a week and uh, describe one sitting and one walking from the previous 24 hours and most of us took some notes, so he just wanted like data he wanted direct information like I got sleepy and I got restless or I was filled with joy or whatever it was, so he could give you some feedback and um, most of us took some notes at the end of a sitting or the end of a walking. So I would go in to see him, and before I could read my notes, he would look at me and he would say, tell me everything you noticed when you washed your face, which was nothing. So I'd leave, and I'd sit, and I'd walk, and then I'd feel my hands in the water, and I'd feel the water in my face as I washed my face really mindfully. And I'd go in to see him the next day, and before I could say anything, he'd say, tell me everything you noticed when you drank a cup of tea, which was nothing. So I left, and I sat, and I walked, and I washed my face really mindfully in case he went back to that. And then when I drank the cup of tea, I felt the, cup of, I felt the warmth of the teacup and the heaviness of it, and I smelled the tea, and I tasted the tea, and I went and see him the next day, and he'd say, tell me everything you noticed when you took off your shoes, which was nothing. So I quickly saw where things were going. And in my mind, I called it the torment of continuity. I thought, oh, great. But the reality of it was kind of great. You know, everything was a meditation. Nothing was more important than anything else. If I was sitting in the dining room drinking a cup of tea and I got completely lost in a fantasy, maybe my tendency would be to, like, throw the cup in the dishwasher, run back in here and try to regroup. But I had to start again right there. Because being in that dining room was as important as being in this hall. And it was a beautiful way of practicing and it's really kind of the hallmark even if we're not doing exactly that you know we're not doing that in daily life because we don't have that luxury as we have here it's really very luxurious um, to be this taken care of there's something of that understanding that uh, it's not like a casual glance at mindfulness now and then that builds its power remember concentration is power it is uh, a much steadier and that means beginning again Right, Because we will have distractions, we'll get completely lost, we'll get reactive, we'll get overcome. And then we need to start over, whether it's coming back to an initial object or coming back to what's most predominant in the moment in kind of a very direct way. We'll always have to do that. And so that is maybe a more common uh, avenue these days for developing a meditation practice. And I, you know, I have great fondness for concentration itself. It's not like we use it and then we think, well, fine, did that, you know? It's like we always kind of come back to that. You know there are times when you just think, I just need to be with the breath. I just need to center, right? I just need to have that kind of grounding. And that's great that we can come back to that and reinforce that and then move on and then when we feel like we should, we come back. I also like the sense of um, all those states, you know, of consciousness. Because I think, oh, that's like the art form of meditation, you know. That's just like wow. But they're just states, and remember, power is not wisdom, and it's not love, and no experience in and of itself, however far out it might be, is actually freedom. Freedom is in being able to relate to everything with that kind of clarity and calm and interest and presence because then we're not we're not afraid you know what if i lose my beautiful state what if someone sneezes in the hall you know what if i have to live in a noisy place what if i have to leave retreat it's different when we understand the the kind of grounding uh, that mindfulness and the, and the real freedom that mindfulness can give us uh, no matter what our situation might be. Okay, I'm going to stop here for now and we can sit together just for a few minutes.